Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. And I'm Joel Dahlquist. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% audio quality because Saudia now has a real microphone. Yeah, Christmas gift. All right. Thank you, guys. I've been upgraded. Welcome to the um, club. Thank you. Officially part of the arbitration station after what is it two seasons? I don't remember. <laughs> Anyways, I made it, guys. Well, I'm glad you said that because we are now officially on the countdown to 100 episodes. So mm. we have this will be 10 on our countdown to one of so we have 10 episodes left to 100 which I think is a massive milestone for us. So this will be the first episode of our countdown. Amazing. Have you counted though? Are you, are you sure about the numbers? Pretty sure. You sound like a partner who's checking my work and I've become <laughs> completely insecure on my answers. It depends. Uh, I think I counted 85 at the beginning of the season and we this will be episode six. So there's been five. So we're counting down 10 if you follow my math. Yeah, I will double check this before it goes out to any client, but <laughs> okay. sure. Thank you. Thank you, boss. Where in the world are you, partner, Joel? <laughs> I am in London, in East London, back home after a month in the US. Where in the world are you, Sadia? I am back in my home in Cambridge after a month in Paris. Yeah, back here as well. <laughs> Where in the world are you, Ryan? I'm back in London after three days in Madeira. <laughs> Madeira is amazing and they've done so well with COVID. Um, everyone is ob obliged to be tested. Every citizen is obliged to be tested once a week. So there are lines outside of every pharmacy. On every They each get assigned a day. Um, so certain days of the week, you have to go and get tested, which I thought is was Is it really COVID? Uh, sorry, COVID. Is it PCR <laughs> test or? Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, they we just heard that from one of our taxi drivers because we kept seeing lines everywhere and we thought what what is all of this and so they told us that and for my elderly parents it was a, a nice a nice thing but uh joel was this your first time to the midwest it was it really was i did a whole chicago detroit thing with my partner who's now also my wife because we also got married Yay, in, congratulations in <laughs> Thank you. That was part of the trip. And also to do the whole origin story to see the Midwest uh, in winter. I was blown away by Chicago. Literally. Um, somewhat impressed by Detroit, which is very similar to my hometown Gothenburg in, in many ways with car culture and whatnot. It was really nice, actually. I very much enjoyed it. And it didn't work for a while. I was actually off, off, as you guys may have noticed. Barely checked my emails for weeks, which was a wow. welcome distraction. And yeah. you gained 10 pounds, I'm sure. He doesn't I look did. like, I was going to say he looks like he's from the Midwest, but not because of the weight, because of his, he, he's wearing a baseball cap and he's chewing gum. It's hockey. It's <laughs> actually the, the Detroit Red Wings. Sadia, thank you for yes. pointing out. I'm sorry, I couldn't see. All right. Wow. Exactly. Okay. You hit it on the head. 
Well, uh, well welcome back. I hope you guys are have New Year's resolutions and everything. We should have done arbitration resolutions on what you want to achieve this year, but we'll <laughs> save that for another day. Another Stay year. alive. Stay, yeah, exactly. What do, Sadia, you'll start us off with your substantive topic this week. Yes, there's been a, a few developments in the new year, but um, one that particularly caught my attention was the CR guidelines on technology. So I'm going to address those and share um, those guidelines with you. And then it will follow up with a interview with Jenna Burton from Rados, which is an investigation company based here in London, but they have offices um, in other locations. And Jenna is a director there, and she works with um, investigations dealing with terrorist financing, sovereign asset tracing, investigation in government corruption and bribery, and just general marshalling of documentary evidence relating to arbitration. And she's been on the books for a while, so we're really happy to finally get her in the quote unquote studio. I feel like once we figure out how to, what, what title to give her, that will also be the title of this episode because she has, I'm sure, the, the okay, at least in terms of what she does for a living, she has the coolest job than what to call her. I'm not sure the the investigator. I know, I, I, I definitely mixed up titles when I interviewed her and it was, I did couldn't really still after 20 minutes of speaking to her, nail down what I should have called her. That's fine. <laughs> Is a she spy. a spy? <laughs> That's fine. It's a spy. We blew her cover. She now has to go into hiding. <laughs> and then we're doing happy fun time, which I think will be me asking you questions because it's a topic where we probably have different experiences and different angles given our roles in the typical arbitration. And that is transcripts and transcripts corrections. We already talked to a, a transcriber, I think early season five, right? We talked yes. to David Kasten. Uh, who has done hundreds of arbitrations as a court reporter. But um, for this happy fun time, we will focus on the more practical aspects from our perspectives when you're working on a case as typically a, a lawyer for a law firm or in my case, working for the tribunal. How does the transcript and the correction process work? Oh, terrible, terrible. It's a war. <laughs> it's a war. It's a war that you didn't even expect to happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Great. guys. Happy New Year. Let's get happy started. Happy New Year. Let's get started. 2022. Here we go. Okay, guys. So we've talked a lot about technology um, in the past years, especially since uh, the pandemic. We've been using it more and more and more and are still completely dependent on technology. And uh, one interesting development that I saw was uh, the CARB framework guideline on the use of technology in international arbitration. Now, the CARB is the, for those who don't know, the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, because I was saying, like, Jill was like, don't use acronyms. Don't just, use acronyms. Come on, just don't. <laughs> or at least so explain that, them. Explain, explain them. them. Okay, so I have used them now. Um, explain them now. Yeah, and they're defined. CARB. I have defined CARB. And now I'm also going to explain um, that it is not their first guideline. It is actually their 15th guideline, not on the use of technology, but guideline altogether. There is a bunch of other guidelines, which I encourage every arbitration user to check out. One is on the interviewing our prospective arbitrators, the terms of a tribunal's appointment, how to deal with jurisdictional challenges, applications for interim relief, security for cost, 
witness conferencing, the use of expert witnesses, how to deal with situation of default and party non-participation, and uh, how to manage an arbitration process with the use of mediation and documents and so on and so forth. So a lot of stuff to look into, a lot of resources for you that are easily accessible online to you. And so the most recent one on is on the use of technology in arbitration. So what is what are those guidelines about? Obviously guideline meaning defining the terms here for Mr. Professor, who's also now a partner and also from the Midwest. <laughs> Um, guideline is soft law, so it's not compulsory, doesn't apply automatically unless both parties agree to its application. Uh, usually when you want a guideline to apply, like very famous guideline that everybody refers to in terms of references, guys. IBA? Yeah, IBA. Taking evidence. Taking of evidence, exactly, you refer to it during your first procedural call. So if you wanted to uh, refer to these guidelines, do it um, with the party's agreement during um, the procedural the procedural uh, call with the arbitrator, right, the tribunal. Um, but I, I think it, it's more than referring those in my arbitration. I think that it's just interesting to see things written in a specific guideline that we all know about, at least all three of us, and that's what I'm gonna ask you about. I just think it's really good for just bearing in mind that arbitration is international and also that there's an e equal access to technology um, in the world. Um, and so maybe every things that seem completely normal to us might not be the case for every user everywhere in the world. So that only for that, I thought it was really interesting to have this guideline and the key principles that these guidelines are uh, structured around is um, fairness, transparency to go together, proportionality uh, and efficiency, and uh, finally confidentiality. And that's why the guidelines are structured in two parts. The part one covers general principles is including understanding the powers and duties of arbitrators, ensuring fairness and making proportionate use of technology. And then the second part um, has a specific, um, you know, uh, rules on relating to cybersecurity and ways to avoid personal and case-related data breach. So that I thought was uh, was a good um, a, a good way to structure it. Now, on um, when you look at uh, part one starts with Article 3 on the arbitrator's powers and duties in respect of technology. Um, there is a mention up front, which is very important, uh, but I'll ask you uh, anyways. Um, when these guidelines apply, do they apply like in a legal vacuum or what other laws should you look at um, that are applicable to the arbitration in terms of the use of technology? Guys, which, which laws would be applicable? Well, none of them really say anything about technology, do they? I mean, like the arbitration rules and the place of arbitration legislation? So arbitration rules, obviously, if they do refer to technology, yeah, that's that's a, that's a good one. Brian, I'm thinking a bit more indirect, which is if you think about the right to a procedural hearing, uh, right to a virtual hearing versus a physical hearing, for example, and whether there is a mandatory law um, that could potentially conflict with someone trying to use technology for a virtual hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, you both said it, and the law of the seat 
of the arbitration is particularly relevant. And they do um, specify that Article 3.3, the powers of the tribunals are subject to any relevant laws applicable to the arbitration, including data protection laws at the seat of the arbitration. These laws might place constraints on the use of technologies, whether such use is agreed by the parties or directed by the tribunal. So, and they also specify arbitrators might need to obtain advice on the applicable laws to identify those constraints and the cost of obtaining such advice should be counted as parts of the costs of the arbitration. Mm. For example, arbitrators may need to establish whether it is legitimate at the seat of arbitration to issue an electronic, i.e. signed award. Which, oh, I, you know. I completely agree with that because I've yeah. had so many tribunals that have requested a circulated signature page via email or via yeah. mail, sorry, registered mail. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and we've talked about this multiple times, right? I mean, yes, we want uh, to be more green and, you know, uh, co- concerned uh, with environmental concerns and just not print anything anymore. But we need to to, to look and, at uh, uh, right laws. now also pandemic concerns. Like you can't necessarily assume that the arbitration institution or the various lawyers are able to go into their offices to print and sign and scan and mm-hmm. send things yeah. around. People want to stay in their homes uh, in many places of the world right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Now, there's also a specification that, of course, these guidelines apply um, to, um, I mean, to discuss the powers and duties of arbitrators um, used by the, for technology used by the parties for a common purpose. So within an arbitration, so it's not um, technology that you would use uh, privately. Um, And they say, uh, it, uh, yeah, it doesn't extend to the regulation of technology used privately by an individual party for its own purposes. Just as parties have a free choice of legal counsel, so they can choose for themselves what technologies they believe would best help them during the arbitration. Makes sense. Except, except there are circumstances where technology used privately by one party might affect the proper course of the arbitral process and or result in an unfairness for the other party. Does that ring a bell for you guys? What what examples do you have in mind of that? Has it happened to you ever that the private use of technology by one party has an impact on the conduct of the arbitration as a whole? Yes, but I don't know if it would if you would have it within the scope of prejudicing the other side versus impacting the other side. Of, of course, it would impact if you find evidence through a AI technology tool to sift through a lot of evidence in order to get certain documents out, but that would impact the proceedings, but not necessarily prejudice the other side. Yeah, it would be helpful for the case too. Like I, right. I would find this this uh, just usual and, and and normal, really, even if it does impact the other side. But what they're referring to, and that that was that's what I was um, I was uh, interested to read. They, um, they say, for example, the technology used by one party to store and review documents and data might not allow the arbitrators in the other party to understand whether that party has complied with a duty to disclose information. Oh, and I further, see. yeah, that's an interesting example. And the other one is further, the technology used by one party might impact the rights of another party to the arbitration. For example, uh, storage of data by a party might lead to concerns about whether it is taking sufficient steps to comply with its duty to keep confidential the information. Mm, so, right. um, you know, but in your, to, to summarize, uh, when there's disclosure request, you know, whether you've complied with your obligations, how can we check this? And secondly, uh, confidentiality obligations. 
So I had this recently with a bunch of WhatsApp messages, which were produced and ah, we found out yeah. that there were files embedded in, you know, how you can send files via WhatsApp mm-hmm. and they had produced all the WhatsApp messages. And we saw that in reviewing the WhatsApp messages that the embedded files and pictures were not produced. And they said, because it was, there were so many WhatsApp messages that it was only, you know, based on the technology that they had, they couldn't take out the embedded files and it would have been too much work on them and too much burden. But those files were materially relevant to the dispute and had to be produced in a separate phase of document production once they were found. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, interesting. Um, Then they also refer to uh, the proportionality uh, principle, proportionate use of technology. So what did that inspire to you when we say proportionality, proportional to what? what? Why do you think they use that term proportionality? Isn't it always towards a, a legitimate end? Like yeah. you shouldn't use super fancy and expensive and complicated uh, systems for something that is relatively straightforward and not confidential or complicated and vice versa. You shouldn't use uh, Gmail to send encrypted state secrets. <laughs> Exactly. Well said. Well said. So they they do make a distinction um, here uh, in our article from I mean, guideline four point three. They refer to smaller cases, which which to be honest, I, I you know they haven't defined. So it's it, it that's a bit. Uh, it says in smaller cases, it might be appropriate not to use overly sophisticated technology, even if for reasons of cost efficiency, the arbitral process in such cases might be run entirely online. And in larger cases, it might be appropriate to use less technology than expected, despite the size of the case and the amount of evidence and submissions involved. Um, It's a very case-by-case approach. How do you define small? How do you define large, right? I mean, a smaller case can be as complex as a large case. Uh, And how, you know, is it the amount of disputes, the number of parties involved? Is it the number of evidence? Um, In your experience, do the technical arrangements either from like within each side's internal system or for the systems used for the case with the tribunal and, and across the, the parties. Does that differ from case to case? It's my impression that most people in this, I mean, you have your default, you have things you use, you have software and you have shared spaces that you work in and whatnot, and you use them regardless of the type of the case. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not like, law firms or for that matter arbitrators are sophisticated enough to like switch out the toolbox and use a different kind of you know i thought about this too it's so standardized in law firms because of all the confidentiality concerns but we're talking big law firms i don't know how it is for smaller firms i don't know how it is for local regional firms and also on the arbitrator side it also depends very much if it's an institutional arbitration or an ad hoc one imagine an ad hoc arbitration with a single person who has like a Hotmail account or whatever it is. I don't know, you know, it happens more often than we think. Does that person have a sophisticated IT setup or not? And then there's no standardized practice for that case, I guess. Well, I think um, you hit the, the nail on the head there that smaller firms don't, it's a luxury item. All of these mm-hmm. like confidentiality and safeguards and all of that are or luxury items that a lot of smaller firms or clients that don't have enough money to provide that or ensure that this type of thing is is considered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the proportionality uh, guideline, they also refer to um, the environment, environmental concerns, um, and also due process. 
So whether it's fair for both parties to use a certain um, technology. Also, and I wanted to, um, to talk about this specifically, um, they refer in guideline 4.5 um, to specific technology might be needed to enable access for individuals with recognized disabilities. While some technology may not be properly accessible to the individuals involved in the arbitration because they may not be familiar with the language used in the technology. So they're, I think, you know, raising the problem of unequal access to technology, not just financially, but also from disability and which I honestly didn't see anywhere before mentioned like this in a document. So I, I like that. Um, also, they mention other stuff that we talk about all the time, which is, you know, virtual hearings and um, avoiding digital fatigue and timing appropriate um, according to the location of individuals and so on and so forth when you make decisions as to the use of technology, which I know, Joel, you have to deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> um, then they also mention, of course, proportionality. Then there's uh, fairness and transparent use of technology and um that's also where they highlight the barriers. They, they really, um, you know, lay it down there. Article guideline 5.2, arbitrators should be aware that there can be barriers to access for some parties where technology is concerned. They may not have the resources or the knowledge to use certain technology appropriately. And as noted above, language may also be an issue because some software, for example, does not support multiple languages. Some barriers may not be readily apparent to arbitrators, such as lack of familiarity with the technology uh, in a party's country, lack of key infrastructure, such as stable power supply, internet access, jewel, 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 and or sufficient data transmission. <laughs> Consequently, <laughs> the use of certain technology for common purposes in an arbitration may create an unfair procedural advantage. So it's to bear in mind basically that they've um, laid it down. Um, they also talk about transparency uh, for the arbitrator um, in particular um, to disclose what kind of technology it's using. Obviously, not all kinds of general technology, but for example, if it were using uh, analytical software, um, that would um, you know contribute to the decision process of the arbitrator. You know, like <laughs> yes, I'm an arbitrator, and I am. <laughs> Make, gonna make my decision with my friend here, which is software, whatever. Oh, and the <laughs> arbitrators. It, arbitrators, uh, arbitrators, yeah. arbitrators, yeah, arbitrators, right. transparency. So they have to disclose also what technology they are using. Because I was thinking, uh, if you look at, if you consider fairness and transparency, and mm -hmm. you have an expert who's produced some findings or a graph, and you try to, and they, per, and then you ask for the raw data. Usually, the other expert watches the raw data, so they can go through that. Mm -hmm. And then they want to see the formulas. And I don't know if necessarily per, the use of the technology and software per se is unfair, even though the other side doesn't have an expert that can read that. Wouldn't it be on the, would that be, per, would that be unfair that you've hired someone who knows how to do this and the other side doesn't have someone who knows how to read it? And in the same sense, if the language of the arbitration is in English and the other side's council or you know whatever doesn't know how to or let's say it's spanish is the language of the arbitration and mm -hmm. the other side's council isn't very versed in spanish and they have to review loads and loads of data and documents in spanish and then they say that it's unfair based on language well, i guess it's, it's case by case but. yeah but you you've you've raised a really good point if i would say if they've agreed to a language being a certain language then right this is, this is interesting in a separate discussion. I'm not sure I necessarily agree. Well, if it's council is one thing, but 
it, it may be that procedural language is X and then there are very important fact witnesses, for example, that, that show up later in the case. Mm -hmm. They're crucial to one party's making it case, I mean, its case. And the fact witnesses don't speak the language of the arbitration. Isn't that an, an issue of concern? If you look at, you know, considerations of due process, et cetera, that they, they, you know, we're doing remote hearings and our key fact witness doesn't speak the language of arbitration and the software used for whatever showing something during the hearing is only mm -hmm. in the language that our witness doesn't speak. Mm -hmm. Could be a problem. Mm -hmm. I wonder what you would do as an arbitrator in that scenario, though. Would you order a translation of all of that? <laughs> but then that's the thing. It's on cost. It would naturally yeah. be a translation, of course. But then translation of what? You know, yeah. of the testimony, for sure. Uh, but then we're talking about, I don't know what kind of software uh, they have in mind. That maybe try to be... get, if it's for a hearing, maybe you try to get both parties to consent to the witness yeah. having someone else in the room, like an associate from the firm can sit with them and translate mm -hmm. or help them or, you know, have <laughs> Sounds I Sounds like ITs. something yeah. that hasn't happened a year, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> no, not specifically, but, but I think that the, I've seen those discussions of yeah. who can be present to assist someone who has issues with technology, you know, mm -hmm. do we allow, uh, and generally I don't think that's a, a problem with, with, unless the parties are really contentious, like having an IT person, present in the room when there are issues shouldn't be a problem typically i think yeah yeah yeah, that, yeah we had a whole um document that was on it was for a virtual hearing that was just kind of setting out what the that what the witness was and was not allowed to have in the room and who was allowed to be there and the qualifications of that person were all expressly uh limited in in a specific document that was agreed by the parties so mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this, these are all very important um, uh, points. So it, it's uh, it's good that they're written here <laughs> because mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's stuff that you don't necessarily think about um, up front. Um, and then um, and then there's a whole discussion on uh, you know the the, um, the other other big big chunk of issues concerning technology is the secure use of technology. Um, and, um, you know, they, they highlight that there's always a possibility for technology to be insecure. What it means, what does it mean in secure technology is that it's open to cyber attack or unstable, subject to deterioration. Um, some such weaknesses can have several causes, uh, including software vulnerabilities and human errors. The consequences can include breach of confidentiality and loss of data. So, and then that's what I like. And that's what I think... Um, is, is useful is they um, give you examples of um, in part two on of standard security measures. Standard security oh, measures that's can be great actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can be implemented by participants 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 sorry still waking up 2022 2022 <laughs> uh, without professional technical support prohibitive expense and additional time input. So basic stuff, basically like, hey guys, you need to be able to do this, okay? Um, so examples, do you guys have any examples? Multi-factor authentication to like log into things. Yes, that's that's one, yeah. Brian, do you have one? Uh, <laughs> no. Login authentication. I, it's, I think it's so basic. That password just, protected documents? Yeah, password okay. protected documents is a good one. Yeah. Oh, I exist. Okay. Yes. I think it's, it's stuff that everybody uses. I'm going to 
give you the, the ones that they list, but it's obviously not an exhaustive list. Uh, guideline at 7.2. Such measures include, but are not limited to, create unique and complex passwords and where possible, enable multi-factor authentication. Two, keep computers, laptops, tablets, mobile phones, and other devices updated with antivirus software and other data protection software. Okay. Three, avoid using public internet access. For example, Wi-Fi in cafes, airports, on devices that hold confidential data if a virtual private network is not used. I think mm -hmm. we are all guilty to that. Um, the Hillary Clinton problem. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> but that was a different, wasn't it? She used her that, Gmail, but. Yeah, she used her Gmail. But the it wasn't famous, that she used. The famous meme is her in an airport on her phone. Oh, okay. And how many times have <laughs> yes. we all been on a phone yeah, in an airport? Yeah, of course. Of course. connected to the Wi-Fi. Yeah, but the, of course. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, number four, use encryption or password protection when transmitting soft copies of confidential documents and data. And ensure also that hard copies are kept in a secure location when not in use. This is basic stuff, that, yeah. honestly. So uh, coming back to the original point that we mentioned, yes, we implement. We all have those guidelines, regulation. When I say all is at least the three of us in our respective work environments, which which sounds to us that's kind of like, okay, duh. Yeah. And and yes, everyone's respecting this in the firm because we've got regulations. But you know, it's it's maybe not the same for everyone. And that's why it's important to to jot that down. They even go a different um they they there's, you know, I'm not gonna read it out all, even if it's very interesting. But for example, for passwords, and we have this every time we create an identity, a login, even in our private life, uh, they recommend you what kind of password you should have. Here it's written that, you know, they have something specifically say at guideline 10.2.1, password protection should be enabled on all devices holding confidential information. They should be complex, a mixture of letters, number and symbols, different from other passwords and change regularly, at least quarterly. You know, avoid saving your passwords or noting them down and where possible use a facial recognition system or another type of biometric identification, so on and so forth. So, you know, it made me laugh to read this, but at the same time, like, what an 80 year old, like when I explained this to my dad, who's not 80 even, like he, he wouldn't, yeah, it's, it's news to him, you know, mm -hmm. that he can't have password, like Papa1234, please don't hack my dad's <laughs> account. <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, all the stuff on secure sharing, encryption on information, access to info, who can have it, clouds that you can use, cloud computing, recognizing and avoiding phishing scams, mm -hmm. you know, phishing, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, not F-I-N-S. -N. No, that's a different thing. <laughs> that's a different thing. Although phishing fishes for information. Yeah. Yeah. English, English as a second language. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then also there's, um, and we, we talked about it before, um, they uh, speak about the risk profile uh, of a specific case that must be considered. And I think that's important um, upfront. Certain factors may increase the risk of security breaches, like the value of dispute, involvement in governments, Joel, you mentioned it at the beginning, the uh, high level officials of transnational corporations, the location of the parties, 
um, if in jurisdictions where data protection laws as underdeveloped or where the physical security of service might be compromised. Didn't cite any jurisdictions, but we can all think of some. Uh, a focus in the arbitration on high-profile issues such as the environment, human rights, cryptocurrencies, or intellectual property. The subject matter of the disputes where it relates to critical sectors such as power, infrastructure, natural resources, banking, or technology and where there are a large number of participants in the arbitration or large amounts of data increasing the risk of human error. Um, and this, these are things that I think should be addressed upfront, right? Because then if you decide that you're, the risk profile of your case is different, then obviously you will have to have management of information differently um, than the regular protections that you would have. So I encourage you all to read these guidelines. Um, they're just a couple of pages long. Um, and maybe you've already introduced them in your daily day practice. Maybe you haven't, but there you go. Do you feel now, uh, guys, that you're in a good place having gone through this? <laughs> no, I need to go talk to some people. <laughs> no, I think I think we all have this these standard protections. I mean, if we're just parlaying off the last topic, we all have standard protections in place, but you don't know what's on the other side and you definitely don't know if the other side is going to keep your client's interests um, at the forefront as, as much as you are specifically if you're talking about commercially sensitive or politically sensitive documents. So mm -hmm. this, this along with a hundred other things that we've advocated on this podcast to put in the first procedure order could be definitely one of them. There's a lot of confidentiality agreements that go on in the interim, you know, in while an arbitration is pending and this could definitely be included in, in some of those confidentiality agreements, some of those parameters. So it is. And, yeah. And I think also our client likes trust us because by nature, our activity is so sensitive. You know, we deal with confidential information all the time that they expect mm -hmm. from us to have the latest information on the latest software to use and the latest share. You know, they are not, I mean, they do sometimes depending on the identity and the, you know, complexity of the organization we're dealing with have their own security um, requests, but mm -hmm. it really is for us to be on top of all of this. Um, have so you guys ever heard of a firm being held accountable or liable for any breach of data or any hack? Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I mean, so. liable, I don't know, but there's been discussion. Hasn't the, um, wasn't there an institution that got their um, email? Hat? Oh, it? yeah. Which one that it was. Uh, it also pops up in uh, within cases a lot. I've yeah. seen reported a lot of you know the, the other side has allegedly gotten access to information that they shouldn't have gotten access to, or right. privileged information has leaked somehow. And you know, it seems like maybe we should accuse the other side of having done something. Or mm -hmm. I was working, then, or I was working with someone on a not on a someone at my firm was working on a case and their computer went really slow when they started working on a specific case that had to do with a politically sensitive issue mm. and that's a hallmark example of someone's computer being monitored or surveilled mm -hmm. so yeah. there's there's definitely risks oh yeah i was talking i mean i'm not going to name but um some colleagues um they were saying where they would uh, travel to certain jurisdictions colleagues not at the firm, I'm not even going to say which firm, um, and where when you work for government people, also you have to check when you go at the hotel, make sure there's no oh, <laughs> there's yeah. no mics, and you know, make sure that uh, there's no cameras around. Be careful when you're communicating because that you know people know where you're staying, they know what you're doing. You're, um, it's yeah, they'd be careful with everything, not just your email. In fact, 
Absolutely. So, we have a good bridge to the Jenna interview. There you go. Mm. <laughs> Let's hear what she has to say. We are sitting today in a lovely office place in Clerkenwell in the city of London with Jenna Burton, who's a director at Rados, an investigative firm dealing with enforcement measures related to arbitration. Welcome, Jenna, to the Arbitration Station podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm very excited to be on the podcast today. So I've said this many times on the podcast that one of the aims of every season is to get people outside of pure arbitration lawyers to comment or give insight on their participation in the arbitral process beyond just being counsel for a client. So tell us today what you do specifically and also how it usually typically intersects with arbitration. Yeah, so um, I'm an investigator and my firm in particular focuses on cross-border disputes and other kinds of contentious situations. And a large part of our work is um, doing investigations for commercial arbitrations um, involving, you know, sometimes state investor treaty issues, um, sometimes involving enforcement. Um, we do a lot of asset tracing and enforcement support for awards that have already been granted. And yeah, it's arbitration is a kind of central part of my work. But as you've mentioned, you know, we're not lawyers. We're here to gather facts, um, identify assets, identify witnesses. So, you know, it's kind of peanut butter and jelly, lawyers and investigators. <laughs> That's right. So I have often intersect, interacted with uh, investigators like yourselves uh, in dealing with some of the arbitral measures that or arbitrations. And one of those really has to do with funding. And in the funding, in finding the funding process, uh, you contact the funders and the funders, the main thing they want to know is the possibility of enforcement, the likelihood of enforcement and where those assets are located, enter RADOS. And so you typically will get instructions from counsel to discuss the scope of work and what is needed. So I know that there must be many pitfalls that counsel fall into as far as, um, inaccurate instructions or instructions that will lead anywhere. So what would you like to see or what kind of instructions do you typically like to get as an investigator? I think because so much of the job entails problem solving and creativity and really thinking out of the box that even for the instructions that are less clear uh, or broad, um, those can, even though they're more challenging, they can end up being really fun because it really does like push you to think creatively. And we get called in um, it for engagements throughout the life cycle of a dispute. So we could get called in, say, in the very beginning of an engagement, of a, excuse me, of a dispute before, you know, a request for arbitration is even filed, right. where the client or counsel may have kind of an instinct or uh, kind of a hypothesis around some kind of misconduct, but it's, you know, really not scratch the surface yet of what's there evidentially. And we have to gather facts from day one. Um, conversely, we can, for the enforcement support and the asset tracing side of the work, we can be called in, you know, years after an award has been granted and the client, unfortunately, is having trouble identifying assets that are viable for attachment. And we may get called in um, to help dig those up. So sometimes our remit is very specific um, and very targeted. And sometimes 
because the the problem in itself hasn't been clearly defined like we're there to gather the facts on the ground um but it's interesting to see how the situations play out often and there's always surprises oh i'm sure and what do you think about evidence that council doesn't even know exists or a breach that they didn't even know had transpired you know for example taking corruption or a bribery where the evidence is usually hidden or um you know, hidden under loads of documents or concealed by the general public or even an investigator. It seems like a daunting task when you're trying to figure out something that you don't even know exists. So where do you start? That's such a good question. Um, And, you know, usually for any investigation, even for those that are, you know, for we're coming further down the road and a lot of facts have already been established, we always start with a thorough scrape of the public record um, and you know request corporate documents and filings from various bodies. So that's kind of, we want all of the information that is out there in the public sphere as just a foundation. Right. But then from there, you know, often with these types of issues and these types of disputes, like you're not really going to get smoking guns in the public record, per se. Um, And a lot of our fact-finding is built around identifying sources and identifying witnesses who may have direct knowledge of certain transactions or certain actors or certain relationships. And we go from there. And, you know, ultimately, when you identify people who perhaps have witnessed some kind of uh, germane event, you know, the best case scenario is to have these people willing to go on the record but in some jurisdictions where we work um you know where we're dealing with really sensitive issues such as political corruption uh, excuse me government corruption or dealing with people that are very influential you know, people don't want to go on record witnesses don't want to go on record for obvious reasons so it's about you know gathering as much as many facts as we can gathering evidence where we can and you know, using what we learn from people to open up new strands, new avenues um, of where to find documentary evidence or evidential material to be submitted to, you know, show these facts that we've uncovered. So I know that in as counsel, I really appreciate when you're involved at the very beginning and you're able to experience the entire life of the case to know the, the record backwards and forwards and to know where to find documents and to know if there's anything that could be potentially useful. And I know that when you bring in an investigator, sometimes that can happen on a on pro, a per project basis or just for a discrete issue. So you kind of come in uh, into a monster of a case and they ask you one specific issue, but that actually requires much more context. So how often do you come in at the beginning of a case versus just punching your card and uh, coming in at a, a discrete issue that's a re- that's arisen. Yeah, a lot of that depends on counsel and kind of depends on what the like what exactly what problems we're trying to you know help solve or what facts we're trying to help gather. You know, sometimes if a, the question is a simple one such as you know who was this individual working for at this given time period and all that needs to be established is you know to prove that an individual was working for a particular institution at a particular time and we may be able to come in and you know establish that evidentially and that's all that's needed in the case Mm -hmm. and that's okay um and then other times it's more of a long game where you know we may be working on a particular investigation for years Um, and developing witnesses and, you know, gathering more more evidence. Uh, uh, 
for a very long time. Um, so I think it really depends and a lot of it is just kind of working with counsel to see like, you know, what facts, you know, we need to go out and, and gather information about, etc. Um, I think, you know, we have seen situations where sometimes new counsel comes onto an existing case, um, that we'd been working on, you know, previously. So, Sometimes we're, you know, everyone's kind of helping everyone get up to speed in some circumstances or vice versa. If we're coming in later in the life cycle, we're getting up to speed. So it can vary. Um, but, you know, I think the earlier that we're engaged, you know, obviously there's a different, you know, we'll have a different kind of vantage point. So usually when you scrape the record, as you said, typically you don't find a smoking gun and counsel always knows it's very difficult to find a smoking gun. But have you ever found a smoking gun, one document that tells you everything you need to know in your investigation? Yeah, and the public record, like, if it's if it's establishing, like, a specific fact, like, I'll go back to the example I used of, like, someone representing a particular institution at a particular time, and you may find, like, a, you know, a government letter a PDF that's uploaded to like a local whistleblower mm-hmm. website and you see that someone signed this person signed it and you're like okay wow right. but for like <laughs> the more for the more complex cases involving very sophisticated frauds and right. often involving a number of different actors you know who collude and you know who commit a series of frauds over time the idea of the quote-unquote smoking gun it's just like an elusive shadow almost because you know it's so much of it is gathering a, a number of facts you know and showing fact patterns over time so that requires you know inherently requires documents over right. a very long time or witness testimony of someone you know it's you it's just a comp exactly exactly <laughs> so like I think one way that we can get towards that and work with counsel is, you know, doing things like gathering evidence to help form a third party disclosure order where we think a particular institution may have valuable information to a case. And it's, you know, obviously private and confidential, um, but we can work with counsel to apply to, you know, whatever court in a respective jurisdiction to have that information subpoenaed because we know that smoking gun, you know, lies with, you know, a bank because the bank is going to have their transaction. So what facts can we gather to show, help show a judge, to convince a judge that data from that bank, you know, should be subpoenaed. Do you typically get instructed by counsel or do you ever get instructed by funders directly? Uh, it's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, usually by counsel, um, which, you know, protects our work product, which is great. Um, we do work with a lot of funders as well. And we also have relationships, you know, with sometimes ultimate clients, let's say, for example, in an internal investigation mm-hmm. where there is no dispute filed and the client you know, maybe suspects, let's say, like embezzlement or some kind of wrongdoing and just wants to gather enough facts so that they can make management decisions and, you know, maybe fire people, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, it doesn't reach um, litigation or arbitration stage at all. So it's just for purposes of internal investigation. So those are kind of some circumstances, but I would say the vast majority, um, it's usually counsel. So we talked about scraping the record and knowing where to find information and which information could be potentially relevant. But is there any 
technically proprietary software or anything that Radus uses or any of your competitor uses that is, you know, equivalent across all your competitors to find such documents? Yeah, I think there's always like tech is a beautiful thing. Like there's always going to be like a new tool that comes out and we're very good about keeping up to date with that stuff. Like our group chat is basically us, you know, texting each other saying like, I found this amazing new tool that analyzes data in this really sophisticated, accurate way. Like everyone should check it out. And we're like constantly keeping abreast of this market and how tech can, you know, be a useful tool particularly if we're thinking about something like tracing crypto assets, for example, right. like using technology. That Gosh, I need you for a case. <laughs> <laughs> you know where to find me. So thinking about how to leverage, you know, the technology that's available right. to help us. And yeah, and I think like, you know, there's certain tech tools that stand out as just kind of like really really sophisticated ones within the market but it's like a changing space all the time and a lot of you know a lot of what we do you know what what we can't do necessarily behind a computer will kind of go out in the field and and you know do things more hands-on like meeting witnesses and and you know interviewing people etc um, Do you guys have a geographic reach that's particular to your firm? Yeah, so our firm um, has global coverage, and I would say each of our founding partners, um, you know, has practices globally, but areas that maybe they specialize in a little bit more. Um, I am focused mostly on the Middle East and North Africa. Okay. Um, I used to live in the region and speak Arabic, so I have a lot of my work is based out of there. Right. Um, and it's yeah, it's definitely a, a really interesting market to work in Um, but we do also a lot of work in sub-saharan africa we do work in south asia a ton in russia and cis um ton in latin america as well so Yeah. yeah so what are the typical if you're hiring someone or recruiting a new investigator what are the types of skills that are required for you or for someone in your industry would it be someone who's just worldly curious is it language or technical aspects what what are some of the characteristics of a typical investigator yeah it's really diverse like we have um you know people at our firm you know that used to be in the public sector and law enforcement we have people who you know are new grads we have people who used to be more on the legal side of things so it's a mix um definitely the international kind of experience foreign languages just kind of a love for international affairs and broadly speaking we all share that for sure um and i think just you know really being innately curious and tenacious um about just kind of fact-finding, as simple as it sounds. (laughs) So it seems like a lot of work, you know, a lot of in front of computer hours or even in the field hours there, time spent traveling. So when you are instructed, is it fee-based, so project-based, or do you bill hourly? Um, what what is the typical like fee structure when you're engaged? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, the nature of the work can sometimes be an inherently unpredictable, right? Yeah. Because... You know, if we had the answers, then (laughs) we wouldn't need us. So so what we like to, you know, we're, and in that sense, we're very kind of open with our clients and, you know, have a flexible attitude with how we can 
develop an engagement that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. And we'll often, you know, do work in phases where we'll work against time and costs up to a particular capped budget. Right, right, right. And that will include, you know, work as described. And then based on what facts we find and what leads we see, etc. after that phase, then we develop a new phase of like, okay, gotcha. it's probably worth putting more resource resources here or this was a dead end, or you know what what have you. So I think working in a phased approach um, can be really useful in the context of this kind of... Council work seems to be following the same trend, actually, especially in terms really? of finding funding for a case. Um, a lot of co- our clients are really reticent to just fork up the initial capital required to fund an entire arbitration. So you get these kind of phased-based instructions. Start with a letter before action or a notice of arbitration, see if it provokes any negotiation. And if it does, then they'll proceed to the next phase and agree on a fee for that next phase. So it seems to be kind of the trend in, in our work as well. So yeah, it's it's inherently unpredictable. But yeah. in that sense too, you know, if we see something as we go that would really kind of change you know, kind of really new, important information. Like, we're always communicating with counsel, really. Like, it's, we like to stay in close contact. We like to give counsel updates on a regular basis, you know, not necessarily only our formalized reports. That way we can just all be on the same page. So there's a lot of myths that, now that I hear you speak about what an investigator actually does, especially when the field, just off the top of my head, I get a picture of you with a wig and sunglasses in some random corner coffee shop in Saudi Arabia trying to talk to a client in Arabic. (laughs) Clearly that's a generalization and a dramatization of what you do, but is that a myth that can be busted or is that actually something that could happen? Um, actually, so yeah, there a lot of my job is flying into far off corners of the world and meeting people in a cafe in, you know, somewhere in the Middle East and, you know, discussing very sensitive things. Um, the wig is probably the only part that, <laughs> but because like our, because we're so focused on gathering evidential material and we're so focused on admissibility we you know have to think about the rules of evidence and you know conduct ourselves accordingly yeah because some you know different firms offer different things and you know sometimes you know a client may just want intelligence right and it may be about a competitor whatever I'm just using a hypothetical example and they may go to a firm that they know kind of conducts a work in a more, uh, you know, uses different, I guess, tactics than we would because, like, all they need is this piece of intelligence, right? So we're just very focused on on evidence and, you know, admissibility. So That leads me to the next question, which is how do you know about evidentiary rules and standards? Is that something that you get instructed by your counsel on or do you have lawyers on your team to be able to advise on that type of issue yeah so you know it we are always in close contact with counsel and you know we try to take all of the these types of things into account um you know when we're doing our work um so yeah and we do have some members on the team that have a bit of a legal background and we have like a you know we're not lawyers and we don't do lawyers jobs but you know we speak as much as possible with counsel just to make sure that we're always on the same page do you guys ever testify 
yeah, so we have been uh, asked to testify before. And yeah, I think insofar as, you know, we're gathering facts is what we see. And, right. and, and yeah, I would say like within the industry, um, it's not uncommon, but I wouldn't say it's extremely common. I'd say as far as I understand, it's somewhere in the middle. And that would be more of an argument of admissibility of the type of evidence instead of submitting like a full expert report on certain technical issues. Yeah, it would be more of the latter, like like an expert report okay. style. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I could see it also going to admissibility as well, but it, arbitration isn't like litigation where you have such strict procedural rules or evidentiary rules. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, sometimes we do work, um, you know, if our clients, if a dispute involves a crime or an alleged crime, um, you know, and there's a desire to bring it to law enforcement, like we will prepare an evidence dossier for law enforcement. And, in cor of course, in those situations, like the providence of the evidence, you have to document it fully. Right. Um, and so, you know, we do that. Um, and like you said, it's not, this isn't, it's a bit of a different ballgame than with arbitration, but these are just kind of, you know, scenarios and questions that, that we come across. So I see this coming up a lot in investment, right? When you're dealing with government entities, especially in issues of bribery or corruption. But is this, is this also a myth that it only comes up in investment arbitration yeah, dealing with kind of regulatory bodies or uh, could this often come up in commercial arbitration as well? often in these cases or is it just like a one-off and it's mostly in commercial cases where you just are doing evidence marshalling in between companies or do you get a lot more in the government sphere? Both really. Uh, we do work on a lot of cases that involve a sovereign um, as a party or... A so like the uh, yes both definitely right. both um and i think you know just with the nature of international commerce like it's just these the issues kind of interplay so you may have like a commercial dispute between former business partners but separately you have an investor state dispute that kind of arises from the same like core issue right. um so you'll see you know, we've seen it go kind of hand in hand. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a mix. <laughs> so as a final question, I would like to ask you a, a difficult question, which is the perception that investigators have of arbitration lawyers specifically as compared to litigation lawyers. As far as work product is concerned or dealing with counsel, do you feel that it's a unique experience dealing with arbitration lawyers in the arbitration process? Or is it quite similar between lawyers across litigation as well? Um, a lot of the arbitration practitioners I work with, like either like they worked in lit before. Okay. So there was like a bit of a crossover. Um, something that you know, the discovery process, for example, and document production are, of course, very different arbitration and litigation. And, you know, I've found sometimes with uh, counsel who's worked both, how they'll say like, wow, you know, it's in arbitration, it's just such a, it's a completely different ballgame. Yeah. And that's often like that, that topic kind of comes up, you know, within those two comparisons. And, 
And yeah, but I think it's a lot of the counts I've worked with have done both. So it's hard for me to decide. But that makes sense considering that arbitration is not like litigation in the U.S. sense, especially in dealing with marshalling of evidence because litigation, for example, in the U.S., you're dealing with, you know, massive fishing expeditions for large amounts of documents. And in arbitration, typically people find themselves constrained by the world in which they're, the documents that are provided without delving into anything further and they're restricted by the Redford schedule approvals by the tribunal. So that does make exactly, sense. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> make it work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do see this investigative tool to be quite a luxury item in cases. You know, if we look to this cryptocurrencies example that you gave, one side doesn't know where they are, the other side doesn't know where they are, and you both know that someone could find this out if you do engage someone. So it is entirely helpful to have uh, your type of services, though people may not think at first blush to engage an investigator to be able to figure this out. Um, so I think that uh, maybe there's potential for us to interact in the future. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. And it's going to be, um, I'm excited to listen to myself on a podcast that I listen to before this so it's gonna be a bit trippy but um yeah it's been a real pleasure thank you so much thank you it's the first happy fun time of 2022 and also the worst aspect of doing this remotely because we are never having champagne or beer anymore when we record Macaroon. these segments. Macaroon. Macaroon. Right. That was a nice yeah. tradition for two episodes before we all got <laughs> locked down. <laughs> so we're talking about transcript corrections. And I know some of our listeners are students. So just by way of background, so everyone is, is on board. In the average international arbitration, there's almost always a live transcript during any kind of substantive hearing sometimes actually even uh, if it's a case management conference at least if it's in a contentious and complicated case but certainly for any kind of of real hearing Uh, and as I said before you can go back to our interview with David Kastan in the beginning of season five if you're interested in the perspective of the transcriber or the court reporter who does this live Uh, so you have a little when now that it's remote, everyone has it on their own computer, but that's also something that typically happens when you're in person, you have a transcript running with a few seconds delay, everything that's being said is recorded literally on the record. And often during a hearing, the parties and the tribunal get the transcript of each hearing day at the end of that hearing day, so that they can refer back to what happened during the day as they work and, and prepare for the next hearing day. Then, after the end of the hearing, these separate daily transcripts are merged and compiled into one draft transcript, which is the record of what was said word by word during the entire hearing. Then, and this is where it gets interesting for our present discussion, I think, this draft transcript is subject to the party's reviews because this draft has to be reviewed and corrected. And this can sometimes be very important. It can even... Cases can turn on the transcript, I think. And this is as, uh, something that I haven't seen because I don't really work for a law firm. And at this stage, uh, in a case that I'm involved in, you know, the ball is with the firm and something happens. Someone does something, I guess, both firms uh, review the transcript carefully and then they talk between themselves and agree or do not agree to how to revise the transcript. Is that an accurate 
intro to what happens at this stage? That is an accurate intro, yes. Yeah, I would say fighting sometimes even becomes um, begins before they send a draft. You will see associates kind of, you know, um, glued to the transcriptor. To, what, what is it called? The guy who takes the transcript, yeah. Uh, court the court reporter, yeah. The court reporter, sorry. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> sorry, I'm thinking in French in my mind. Um, yeah, doing the hearing to say, oh, you said, you know, there was this in the transcript at the first um, session and could you correct this or something already? Oh, that, so then... Have yeah. you not seen that? I In all my hearings, I've seen that happen. Not that real time. No, I haven't seen mm, that. Yeah, real time. We um, In some of the cases I was in, we had a specific associates whose mission was transcript. He was the transcript guy <laughs> or, or uh, lady. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's typically, I've seen that a few times, uh, typically when there are multiple languages involved so that the, the, the court reporter is doing it typically in English, but the witness examination may be in another language, which is then interpreted in real time. So it could also be that the interpretation is not correct. You know, you see the wrong word ends up on the transcript because the wrong word was used in the interpretation. And then there's an associate who speaks the language of the examination. It's like, up, 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 wait here back up the wrong word ended up on the transcript maybe it's an, an interpretation issue mm-hmm. when who then at the firms is this the the juniors job to go through the transcript yeah <laughs> yes we're nodding and smiling at the same time yes yeah. yes it's, i had uh, to do i had to do that many years we all, we've all been through this you're sitting with the nights. audio you're looking at the transcript it takes almost twice as long to actually do it and then if you have a 10-day hearing you have a, a long road ahead of you <laughs> if you do have post-hearing briefs or something like that though it has to be an amazing way of reliving the hearing yes it is very useful actually that's why it's it's important to have people who actually do work on the case mm-hmm. to understand and not just you know someone very junior either who doesn't understand uh, the arguments or something it's uh, and and also i would insist that's also why try to do it live because it saves a lot of time when it's fresh it's a good point how much do you actually refer to the transcript in your advocacy or in general like it, just as a general matter not if it's something specific obviously but is, is it an important part of the work and the submissions assuming you have submissions after the the hearing but you may have a bifurcated hearing and then the case goes on yes what's the what's the legal value basically i guess is what i'm asking in what's being said at the hearing as opposed to what's in written submissions the legal value i would say is you're getting confirmation in person from a witness without the help of counsel who's confirming or denying certain allegations and so you really get a lot of your post-hearing briefs being like the witness confirmed this, and it just adds another layer of support for all of your points. And I think post-hearing briefs should be riddled with references to the transcript because that is the point of post-hearing briefs is to wrap up what the hearing gave to the case versus reiterating exactly what you said in your written submissions. Yeah, that's, a good, that's a, good, a good distinction you're introducing there uh, between witnesses and, and counsel though. I think it, it matters more for, for witness examinations than it does maybe for legal submissions, where at least in theory, you're supposed to, as counsel, only reiterate what's already on the papers. You typically don't introduce new claims or arguments at the hearing stage. So it's you don't have to be as careful reviewing exactly what was said 
in those aspects. But for what the, what happened during the witness examinations, that's the real ballgame. You get a lot of strong language in witness statements versus witness testimony. You get a lot of like very convoluted legal theories that you can't imagine a witness itself would conjure up. So you get a bit suspicious and that's what cross-examination is for is to really put your case to the witness and say, okay, you've said this in no uncertain terms. Are you going to be able to back it up instead of regurgitating what you've been fed by counsel potentially or allegedly? Um, and I think it's it's really useful. You get a lot of witnesses that don't know. Uh, the only counsel knows, especially if they're trying to fabricate a legal theory of the case, no names mentioned. The witness can't keep up with that. The witness doesn't know where its testimony fits in with the legal arguments. It doesn't know if it's following the party line. It doesn't know that. So it's really just going to act spontaneously, especially under an intense line of questioning. Um, so I think you really... You're not going to get the you can't handle the truth moment, but you're in in that cross examination. You're going to. It happens. It happens though. <laughs> Hasn't it happened to you? Like uh, you know, witnesses spilling beans, the same. Oh yeah, so, they get really yeah. angry. And, yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah, and then they and then that temperament makes them very sloppy and how they're protecting some of the you know information that they don't want to be revealed or whatever it may be. I would add that um, I think it's also important for. Of obviously completely agree with what uh, Brian has said, but I would add to this that um, what counsels say uh, in response to tribunal's questions is also mm. very useful. Good point. Because it's in a way, it's like tribunal crossing us, you know, on mm-hmm. questions. That's true. And sometimes you can mm-hmm. read in sort of concessions or yeah. certain statements that if you follow them to the logical conclusion, they actually confirm the other side's mm-hmm. case with, with some advocacy in between. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think the yeah. difficulty I find with corrections or as as a junior, I found before, you know, not having much experience was how far are you correcting the transcripts and how much and this is where the fights happen, because mm-hmm. counsel starts trying to correct inaccuracies versus. Yeah. So like this is what the witness meant to say, given the context and yes. blah, blah, blah. And to take a very easy example, they said the claimant is liable, but they meant the respondent. Hmm. Do you correct that even though you're right sick has said that? I would say you're right sick. Right. I, that's what I would do because the transcript is really supposed to be what has been said. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I meant respondent and I said claimant, we can agree it was a mistake and you just write sick. Yeah. But I said <laughs> it's, you know, but, and that's what you, because otherwise, then where do you draw the line? Well, exa- well, that's an easy example. But if you get into like numbers or mm. damages calculations that can mm-hmm. like really turn on a tenth of a point, and then you're like, oh, that yeah, didn't mean I that. said million <laughs> instead of billion once, yeah. you know, like it's it's a big difference. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. But uh, ideally, course. if you have a good tribunal that's read up on the case, they're very smart and experienced people they will be able to read things in context as well and understand what was intended because they've done this a gazillion times and, and they know that the, much like a podcast, you don't actually say exactly word by word the same way in the same manner that you would in a written brief, for example. It's a different thing and, and it's, like, it's a different context and you have to read the transcript with those, uh, those glasses on. Well, very good. Tr- I mean, not very good. I would say good arbitrators because I think it's it's it should be in their role as well, are yeah. attentive to the transcript. They 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 listen to you and they see the transcript. And I, I had a recent experience where 
the chair was like, oh, the transcript has written, you know, is saying that you said this and I think you meant that. And that yeah, also yeah. comes in the transcript. So it's, it's a live correction is the best thing you can do, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause these fights get out of control. Mm. Um, and I think if, if, if we're talking about civility, which would never happen in this scenario, but if you think the arbitrator will understand what's happening here, um, but you can't rely on that because you don't know what's going to happen. So you end up fighting on the most minute, minute points. Don't even get me started on translations or interpretations. <laughs> that becomes a, an entire mess because you have translators who are lagging behind, didn't pick up the exact nuance of what was said. Um, you're really, then you really get into some dirty fights. <laughs> That's also one of the things it's like transcripts can't read irony. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? You know, we all sometimes say things ironically during a hearing, don't we? Or like, um, just, or when we're really angry at the other side or something, right, <laughs> right, right. a different kind of tone and honestly, the other side sometimes laughs or is very critical of what you're saying. Do you want that to be included in the transcripts? That's that's a lack of respect as well, I would say. Right? Mm -hmm. I think this is something that good advocates can do as well. You can advocate for the transcript. And if you do it enough, of course, you start to adapt your, your style so that mm -hmm. you know it will be captured. Like the, the way you phrase things, it will read on the transcript as well. And that includes, at least to a certain extent, it can also uh, get out of hand, but actually making real-time corrections and making sure that the the transcript accurately reflects what you want the transcript to reflect then you can as i said you can take that too far into the extreme and you know just read things into the microphone yeah. to get it on the record and i've seen a lot of that or heard of as well people who just you know spend cross examinations basically reading witness statements into the record to get it on the transcript so that they can then refer back to it again and sometimes, you know, that's very efficient because during the hearing, you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's so boring to hear someone read out responses. And it's like it can go on for a read out, sorry, questions and it can go on for hours and hours or even read your opening, a closing testimony. It's, it's can't. But when you read the transcript, then it's super useful. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. things are very clear. <laughs> That's you do. And even in your exchange with the witness or the expert, it's almost worth it to add your own response and then lead on to the next question to show either you don't believe it or that's inconceivable or, you know, even something to show because in the transcript, it looks like they've answered yes. And then you're moving on to your next question as if that answer is completely verifiable and trustworthy. And you're now going to move on to your next question, but that's not necessarily what was read in the room. Um, you can ask someone a question, they answer the most bizarre statement, and then you can't really reflect that on the transcript, how bizarre that sounds and how yeah. no one believed it. I don't know. It's, it's a small point, but one thing, if you want a little gift from me, because I don't Ooh. think it's, it's a secret that the tribunal secretary often drafts background sections of awards and procedural orders. This it's, it's part of the game. And part of that is of course, reviewing the transcript to make sure that the the, the non-operative sections or the non-analytical sections of the award will reflect what was said at the hearing. One thing I found extremely useful in this context is when counsel refers explicitly to uh, like slide numbers. 
Absolutely. paragraph numbers in submissions and just tries to anchor it. Sometimes, you know, you can read through pages and pages of transcript and it's very hard to know, like, where are we? Which point is being argued? Like, where does this fit into the narrative or into the chronology? Mm -hmm. But experienced counsel are very good at saying, uh, so mm -hmm. let me refer to page X of the witness statement or mm -hmm. this disputed, you know, provision of a contract or whatever, because let's face it, when you have 600 pages of transcript, we all use control F, a lot to mm -hmm. to find a way and then it's so easy if you can just search for clause 42 yeah, and then very... oh now they're talking about clause 42 yeah that makes it so much point. easier that's mm -hmm. a, that's a really good point mm -hmm. even if a witness refers to a document you confirm with the reference exactly um, so you get the exhibit number on the transcript so that then if you're looking for when did we discuss this exhibit during the hearing you can find it very easily absolutely that's and again I've, I've seen good tribunals you know, they always check you if you haven't, even if they know which exhibit number it is and they're looking at it, they're like, okay, so for the transcript, you know, it's R52. Yes. You know, yes. R52. Yeah. So, yeah. That's very a good really good point. point. Have you noticed any other, any other gifts you want to share, Joel? <laughs> <laughs> no, this Late is. Late Christmas gifts. <laughs> Late Christmas gifts. This is protected business intel. How, mm, come how many fights have you seen on the other side between council over transcripts that you've seen the fights and you've eye rolled and how ridiculous the fights have become? I, th I think typically if the case is managed well by the tribunal, the tribunal doesn't end up seeing the fights right. like, because council know that they have to figure it out amongst themselves. And I think maybe there, I mean, in most cases, I assume that there are more fights in the beginning and then reasonable advocates will not take it to the tribunal unless it's absolutely necessary because you don't want to make an application if you can figure it out like between the parties without, without bothering the tribunal. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's pretty rare, actually. Maybe I've been lucky. Yeah, I think it maybe goes to the arbitrators in question. And I think it's very crucial in a PO or anything to establish timelines, uh, time limits for when this all has to be done, at which point will you just refer any disputes to the tribunal to make determinations on anything's outstanding because these kings can really drag on and it but it is a gift to counsel if the tribunal is everyone's happy the hearing is over but if they're just a bit heavy-handed in the post-hearing procedural steps it just kind of smooths things along yeah because mm -hmm. that's an important thing maybe a good note to end on that you need you need the agreed transcript mm. as approved by the tribunal in order to make any references because the line number or the page number can change depending on what so corrections you make so yeah you need it before you can actually refer Get sort of started. on the record yeah mm -hmm. definitely we'll rant over i guess on that one <laughs> a collective I could, one i could go on and on about transcripts but yeah i i mean you said earlier jill that sometimes the case turns on transcripts i in, yes, it turns on the hearing, I would say sometimes, but on the um, fights between, even if I have been <laughs> part of such fights of transcripts, and now that I think back about it, I, I don't think any of those, no, you know, I, even, I have never seen that myself. Either. Yeah. It tends to be small potatoes, I think, exactly, in, in, yeah. in the great scheme of things, but I've heard of cases, I can't remember exact examples now, but I've heard like friends and people in the industry say that they've had really like significant points won or lost on what was actually said mm. and, and, and as reflected by the transcript. But then I would, I would think the tribunal would like listen to the tape again, you know, because that that's what you do when, when you, there's, there's a disagreement. 
then there's yeah, also an yeah, audio yeah. tape. Yeah, let's let's not leave our listeners with the impression that you can win a case on like a no, dispute on no, which word was happen. used yeah. in a transcript. No, it's not that simple. Unfortunately, you said you did it. No, I said I did not do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's never like that. No. <laughs> All right, 2022 has taken off. Yeah, here we go. Thank you, Jan. On our path towards 100. Yes, exactly. Counting down. Thank you, Jan Kunster, for editing all of our nonsense. And email us at uh, the arbitration station at gmail.com or tweet at us at the arb station if you have any comments on today's episode. And other than that, I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Yay. See you. Bye. Take care.